Joining me in this feature of Next Steps with Kristen is guest Brianne Tyson-Eaton, who's the first Canadian to win an Olympic medal in heptathlon. Brianne won her bronze medal at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games and also competed at the 2012 London Olympic Games, as well as numerous world championship events. Brianne is somebody who I'm very excited to interview as we grew up just an hour apart from each other in hometown province of Saskatchewan. Interesting fact is that we competed out of the same district in high school track and field, and I also had the privilege of winning a provincial title in her hometown of Humboldt, Saskatchewan. First, a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll get to it. Curler's Corner is located inside the Calgary Curling Club. It is your one-stop curling shop no matter where you are in the world. Celebrating 24 years, Curler's Corner is family-owned and operated and has been providing curlers of all levels from beginners to world champions with the equipment they need to give their best performance on the ice. Whether you're looking for a broom, shoes, a slider, gloves, embroidery, or customized apparel, or simply looking for gifts for your next bond spiel, Curler's Corner has what you need to fill your curling equipment needs. Drop in the Curler's Corner at the Calgary Curling Club. Give them a call at 403-270-0220 or visit www.curlerscorner.com. Curler's Corner, your one-stop curling shop. All right, so first of all, thank you so much for joining me here today, Brianne. Um, I guess I'd like to talk about this interview in chronological order, just so that the audience can have a better grasp of what it was like actually moving through your athletic career. So let's just rewind back to your humble high school days. And could you please give us a bit of insight or background as to how you originally got into track and field and when you decided that track was going to be something that you did pursue very seriously? I grew up in Humboldt doing a ton of different sports and I think it was when I was in grade six, they allowed you to do cross country. So that was like the very first school sport you could sign up for. So of course I signed up and I did not like it. I was not a distance turner at all. But I finished that season and then in grade seven, you could kind of sign up for all of the the sports. And so I did basketball and, and all of those. Um, but then track season came and I just decided to do the sprinting event, so I think I started with, like, the 100-200 long jump, triple jump, and um, loved it, and it just kind of came naturally to me, like, I didn't, I could tell that compared to the other students that I had just, like, some kind of natural talent, I was fast, um, I could jump, and then the next year, you could do hurdles, so in grade 8, you could do hurdles, so I started doing that, and I actually started, um, because I was still in, you know, elementary school, I started training with the high school kids in the hurdles because um, they were the ones that had all the equipment. And so I did that. Uh, and then it was actually a grade 8 district that some coaches from the Saskatoon Truck and Field Club noticed me and asked if I wanted to join their club and drive into the city to train. And um, so I started doing that in grade 9, like three or four days a week. And... By the summer, between grade 9 and 10, um, they had convinced me to try to do the heptathlon because I was just sort of average at a bunch of the events that I did. And at that point, I had never done any throwing, high jump, or the 800, so I had to learn those events. And I did really well my first heptathlon that summer, but I was dead set on never doing it again because I hated the 800, and my coach had convinced me that I would make the World Youth Championships the following summer if I stuck with it. 
and that was enough to be like, okay, I'll do it. And then the rest is history. So in high school, um, you know, kept driving to see for track by grade the summer between grade ten and eleven. I pretty much gave up all of my like extracurricular summer because of my family and traveling and hanging out with friends because I I went and lived in the city with um, a family member and trained all summer and traveled um, kind of all over the world, which was really cool as a high school kid to be able to go with a bunch of people your age and not without your parents and travel all over and compete and stuff. So it was a really good experience. Um, and my goal in high school was never, oh, yeah, I want to make the Olympic team. It was more just that I wanted to get a scholarship. I wanted, I knew I wanted to go to school in the, in the States and um, – that was like my big goal to get a scholarship not have to pay for school and then when the letters kind of started coming in I started doing visits uh, to different schools in the U.S. and uh, eventually picked Oregon and that's why I ended up here. Okay so then if we go back to those high school days uh, when you decided to pursue track and field that heavily did you look at giving up your extracurricular activities and time with friends and family as sacrifices or were those just choices that you were willing to make as an athlete? Yeah it was definitely tough because, you know, as like a high school student, you're not really that mature yet. Um, I was kind of being asked to be, to like grow up a little bit quicker by my parents, not not to like fault them at all. I mean, they obviously did the right thing, but they were actually having to take my money that they were saving for me for college or for university to send me all over the world traveling and competing. And so, um, they sat me down um, after my first trip to the World Youth Championships, and they were like, Brianne, you know, we understand that you, you're still in high school and that you have friends and that you don't want to miss out on stuff, but at the same time, if we're going to be spending this amount of money to send you all over the world, well, you have to take it seriously. And so they kind of gave me the option of, you know, don't do track anymore. You know, if you don't, if you, it's too hard for you to sacrifice and miss out on all the friend stuff. Um, but if you do decide to do track, we'll support you 100% financially and, you know, emotionally and everything else. But you, you can't, you have to put it as your number one priority. And so I think in that way it was, um, you know, it forced me to grow up. Okay, what am I going to do? What kind of decision? Like I don't want to let them down. I don't want to waste all their money and then just kind of goof off and not train hard and, and go out with my friends all weekend and stuff. So, yeah, I made that decision. And it, it it was the best decision, but it was tough at times. I had practice every Saturday morning at 10, so in Saskatoon. So that meant that I had to be on the road by 8.30 in the morning, and what high school student wants to be on the road at 8.30 in the morning on a Saturday? That meant, um, you know, I went out with my friends sometimes on the weekend uh, or on Fridays, but I was home early so I could get to bed so I wasn't tired. And so and then in the summer, just not being able to do stuff with them because I was in Saskatoon, traveling and, and competing was tough. Um, I think what really saved me was finding other other people my age in Saskatoon who were there training all summer. And I've become, I mean, I made great friends. And we sort of had the same, you know, goals and motivations. So it, on a Friday and Saturday night, we wouldn't go out and party. We were, you know, hanging out and watching a movie and going to bed early. So it didn't make me feel like I was missing out on so much. Um, so those people were really, like, just my saviors, I'd say. And, yeah, we're still, like, great. I'm still great friends with those with those um, people that I trained with. 
Okay, so when you were deciding which university you were going to go to, how important was it for you to receive an athletic scholarship? And was that something that really did influence your decision to attend the University of Oregon? Yeah, it's actually interesting because um, my two final choices were Syracuse, which is in New York um, on the East Coast. And they're a private school. They had a, I wanted to do business, and they had a really great business school. They were offering me a full ride. I loved the coach. But I just, when I went and did a visit there, I just didn't feel like I fit in as well as I did at Oregon because I took that visit second. Um, Oregon, they have obviously an amazing track program, um, a really good business school also. Um, they're not a private school. so And then I felt like I just really fit in well at Oregon, um, but I was only being offered a 75% scholarship. So there was a lot to weigh. If I was going to go the Syracuse route, I was kind of viewing it as I'm going there for the good school. Um, and if I went to Oregon, it was more I, I'm going to get a balance of track and schooling. And also just I, I felt more comfortable there. But then the money part was weighing heavily on me, you know, because I thought, well, one's a 75% scholarship, the other one's 100 And my parents ultimately just told me, like, you have to go with your gut. You have to go where you're most comfortable. Um, you can't. You know, we would feel more comfortable if we knew that you were going to be happy somewhere and felt like you fit in. And um, I think I knew the whole time that Oregon was where I probably should go, and that's where I ended up deciding. Um, by the end of my four years at Oregon, I had a full ride. Um, we had kind of negotiated it for it to increase every year. So, um, yeah, by my last two years of Oregon, it was 100% scholarship. Right. So during your studies, you were competing internationally, and often a common theme among student-athletes is the challenges of balancing studies with practices and competitions. Can you share some tricks that you learned along the way about becoming a successful athlete while also maintaining your academic standing? And impressively, I think I understand that you received a mention for all academic honors the year that you made your athletic breakthrough in the 2009 World Championships? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I am like very type A perfectionist. Uh, so I would say that pretty much sums up just being able to balance everything. Um, I honestly think it's total crap when athletes say, I don't have enough time to do my school. There's always enough time. I mean, I trained over 20 hours a week when I was in college, and I had time to do my schooling. It, it's just you have to make time to do it. And a lot of people choose to hang out, watch movies, and go out and all these other things. So um, having been through it when somebody says, when someone's getting, like, bad grades and says, well, I just don't have time to do it all, I just don't buy that. <laughs> um, because, I mean, my I did business, which was really time-consuming and had a lot of group projects and was rigorous, and uh, the school expected a lot from you. Um, wasn't easy. So, yeah, I would just say it's all about balance. Like, what are your priorities, which should be getting your schoolwork done and, and going to train, and that's it. And whatever other time you have after that is extracurricular time. Yeah, that's a great answer. And that's kind of what I'm experiencing right now with the university and training and just how to manage my time properly. And it's funny, but I think oftentimes it's the busiest people that seem to get the most done is usually how it goes. 
So now with regards to all of the competitions you've competed in, uh, let's talk about the difference between a world championship and the Olympics. Many people say that the Olympics is kind of the pinnacle of all sporting events, and you've had the honor of representing Canada in both the 2012 London and 2016 Rio Olympic Games. Did you feel the added pressure of competing in the Olympics versus a world championship, and did you prepare for it any differently? Yeah, you definitely feel added pressure in the Olympics. And I think that's just because they're only every four years and the whole world pays attention. Uh, The funny thing with track and field, and I'm sure with all of the different sports that are Olympic sports and have world championships, is that in the world championship year, nobody pays attention to it. But it's all the exact same people that compete at the Olympics. It's the exact same layout and just the whole competition feels exactly the same. It's just like the the away from the track isn't the same. Usually at the World Championships, we just stay in a hotel. Um, it's just track athletes. Uh, there's just a restaurant you eat at. Um, and the Olympics, it's like the whole Olympic Village and all the different countries. And it's a little bit, you're a little bit more out of your comfort zone because in track and field, we all know each other. So when you're in you're in the restaurant eating, you know, you're like, oh, I know them, I know them, I know I know all these people. But when you're in the village with and in the dining hall with, like, 20,000 people, you don't know pretty much anybody. So it, that that's the difference. But also, um, the, and it's not even just the pressure that the media and the public and, like, the fans put on you the Olympic year, but it's also your own pressure of just, being like, okay, this is once every four years, I have to do well now, or I have to wait four years, whereas the World Championships is like, oh, there's another one next year, you know, so just that alone um, makes it a big deal, but yeah, just, I think the also thing is that everyone's paying attention all of a sudden, and you're like, where have you guys been the last three years when I've been competing at the World Championships, so I would say that's the biggest thing. So one of the challenges for many athletes when they make the transition from juniors to uh, professional is the added demands on their time and expectations from sponsors and other supporters. So how did you go about striking that balance where you met your commitments to your sponsors while interacting with your fans and supporters, but making sure it did not impact your training and performance? I would actually say it's the opposite. Um, I was a lot more busy when I was in school doing my schooling and training because then when you transfer to being a professional athlete, you don't have to do school anymore. So you all of a sudden have all this time. And um, talking to a lot of professional athletes that I know that have transitioned from school to professional, they struggled with it. They were like, what do you do all day? You know, I, I train four, three, four hours a day, and then what do I do with the rest of my time? Whereas when you were in university or college, you'd train for three or four hours a day and then go to school for four hours a day. So it just ate up a lot of your time. Um, I'd say the difference when you transfer to being a professional athlete is your, your whole career is now a business, and you have to manage it. So it's not like, okay, the track team's going to book all my travel, and they're going to figure out what meets I'm going to, and... I don't really have to be financially financially worry about things. And when you become a professional athlete, there's contracts. You have to get lawyers and accountants, and you have to decide, you know, when there are – you have to get a manager. A manager or an agent is super important because they're the ones who book travel and get you into meets and things like that. But it's also like when your managers come forward and say, we found this person who wants to sponsor you or we think you'd be a good fit for this person, it's 
knowing what your values are and do your values align with those companies. And, I mean, it's, both Ash and I found that it's super important not to just jump at every opportunity. Like, it has to make sense. You have to, you have to believe in what you're being sponsored by because you're going to ultimately have to do social media posts and videos and, you know, photos and all these other things. And it's totally going to show if you're not, you know, in, invested in it. So that's an important thing. And I, I would say it's just like, you have to totally shift focus, and it it does take time away from training or, like, concentration away from training because training, there is stress in it, um, especially when you're trying to make money doing it. And that's where I see people get into trouble a lot is they're focusing too much on the money, and they let the training and competition slip so or, or being stressed out about it. So I would say that's the most difficult part in transitioning from you know, being a university or college athlete that has a scholarship to going out in the real world on your own and kind of being, you know, having to be financially stable by yourself. Yeah, those are all really great points. So obviously the heptathlon is uh, more of a complex event where you need to train for eight different events and then compete in each of those events over a two-day period. What were some of the biggest challenges for you both physically and psychologically in trying to position yourself so that you could attempt to give a peak performance in, I guess, what would be just a little over 24 hours? I would I would say as I got older, it was never ready. I mean, in my opinion, I had the best coach in the world, and he always had me physically ready. He always had me ready to go. I was always in shape. Doing a two-day heptathlon physically after you've done all the training that we would do is like a piece of cake. There's no reason that you should be tired or, you know, that your legs shouldn't work. Like, they were always, it was always, that part was going to be fine. It was more the mental or emotional side of it that I had to work on um, because that's what makes you think, oh, I'm tired. This is so long. I don't want to do this. And um, that's what makes you think that you're tired when really you're not. I mean, I've had, I've had, 800 races where before the starting line I thought I my legs were just killing me they're so tired I'm not gonna be able to do this and then I would go in PB it was totally like a mental thing so I would say the big thing especially leading up to the Olympics is just trying to stay like calm and under control and positive and so I worked um, quite a bit on like that mental side of the competition All right, so let's touch more on the mental side of things. Sometimes as a skip in curling, you have lots of time to think on the ice, and and oftentimes you have about 30 seconds to stew over a bad shot or a missed call before you have to do it all over again. So how do you go about putting aside a bad performance in one of those eight events, especially if it occurred early on in your competition, and how would you make sure that it wouldn't impact the rest of your competition? I always looked at the heptathlon uh, in like seven pieces, basically. So when I the first event always the first day is the hurdles, and the second event is always the high jump. So when I wake up the first day, I'd be like, okay, I'm just a hurdler today. I don't have to do anything else. I just have to want run. That's it. Um, and then once that was over, it was like, okay, I'm only a high jumper. This all I have to do is get over as many bars as possible. And when I break it up like that, it wasn't so overwhelming. But it also forced me to quickly get past each event. Whether it was like a good, whether it went really good or whether it went poorly, at times I'm not going to say, oh, it was always just a piece of cake. I just snapped my fingers and moved on to the next event. Like it did take five five to ten minutes. Like I would sit there and I would sulk over it for five to ten minutes. Like that sucks, that sucks. Oh, I'm so pissed off. And then 
move on because sitting there and dwelling on it is not going to help you in the next event. So I think that was the big thing for me was just trying to, yes, you're mad. Yes, you're upset. Yes, you've trained hard. Yes, you made a bad call or yes, you didn't do something right or yes, you didn't execute it. But sitting here and thinking about that during the next event, you're just going to force that to happen during the next event. So I would, would always try to put myself in a position to do the best I could. And by dwelling on something, I I knew didn't help, so why would I do that? Um, and that's kind of what I would tell myself. You can't go back and change it, so just get over it. Right. So let's switch over from the mental side of things over to nutrition. And I know that you're a big advocate for healthy eating and leading a healthy lifestyle, as am I. And so let's just talk about how, as athletes, we can properly uh, fuel our bodies with the appropriate macronutrients and calorie counts, especially when we're on the road competing so much. Uh, I actually remember recently in an interview that you did, you talked about how you had packed oatmeal for the airplane just so that you wouldn't have to deal with eating the airplane food. And uh, I know a good example in curling is that sometimes we play three games in a day and oftentimes we don't have time to go sit in a restaurant in between games, nor would we want to eat that type of food if we're not used to eating that during a normal uh, week of training. So just touch on the nutrition side of things and some of the things that you do in order to prepare yourself for situations like these while you're competing. Yeah, I I would say nutrition and, like, organizing your nutrition is very similar to what I talked about with balancing school and training. Um, There's always time for it. You just have to make it a priority. And I, I understand that for people who... It's maybe not high up on their priority list or they don't think, oh, eating a burger is not going to kill me, you know. I get that because I, I mean, there were some days when the night before a competition I'd be like, yeah, I'm having a burger and fries, I don't care, you know. But um, if if you do know it's something that you, that will benefit you to eat healthy or you want to try to get better at nutrition, you have to make the effort to organize your time to pack things that would be convenient or healthy or that you know would make you feel good during competition. Um, So basically, I just made an effort to do that. And it was funny because before Ash and I moved in together, he would just eat the same thing for dinner every night, white noodles, jar of pasta sauce, and a chicken breast. No vegetables, no anything. And I would always tell him, like, you need to eat different stuff. You can't eat the same thing every night. And you have to eat more vegetables. But yeah, 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 whatever. I feel fine. I feel totally fine. I'm training good. I'm competing good. It doesn't really matter. And then as soon as we moved in together and I started cooking for him, um, his results improved a lot. And not to say it's all from nutrition, but he actually said, wow, I didn't know how crappy I used to feel. Like, I actually feel way better now. And so now he is like a stickler for for nutrition, probably even more so than I am. Um, We go out of our way when we're traveling, like even now. You know, we were just in San Francisco trying to find a place to live. And we went like, we took an Uber way out of the way because we just found this place that seemed the healthiest for lunch. So just stuff like that. We put a priority on it. And, yeah, just thinking of things that would be convenient to pack and eat while you're traveling or, you know, when you're not going to be at home uh, is really important. So now we've touched on the physical, mental, and psychological components of competing. Following your bronze medal in Rio, huge congratulations by the way, you and your husband Ash announced your retirement from your professional track and field careers. 
One of the things we keep hearing about is that many elite athletes often don't really know when is the appropriate time to pull the plug. So in a previous interview, you mentioned that you didn't want to make the decision to step away from track based on your fatigue from the previous year or the previous competition. But instead, you decided that you were going to go for a run when you um, felt you were ready and you were going to clear your mind and just see if your your burning passion was still alive and if this is something that you seriously wanted to pursue and commit more time to. So talk about uh, your mindset through all this and how you went through the process of making this decision. Yeah, I when I crossed the finish line from the 800 in Rio, I literally thought to myself that I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. That This sucks, which was totally shocking to me because every time I finished a head pass on, I would always be like, oh, that was amazing. That was awesome. Now I remember why I do it. You know, it's just to compete with these women. And um, it's, it's, it's so cool to be able to push yourself and see how good you can be. And it was just like the complete opposite reaction. And it, like I said, it totally shocked me. And I thought to myself, you know, a couple days later, okay, that was really weird. I didn't like that feeling. Like, I'm actually kind of sad that I felt that way. Is it just because I am just so emotionally drained after this year that I I just can't compete anymore? Um, Is this a real feeling? Like, am I not passionate about this anymore? Like, what's the deal? So, yeah, I took three months. Without, I wouldn't even think about it. I actually tried to bring it out and talk about it. And um, I was like, I don't, you know, just leave me. Leave me be. I can't even think about it right now because I feel like I'm going to make the wrong decision. So we didn't talk about it. And, yeah, and then it was kind of getting close to the time we were going to start training. Our coach texted and said, hey, guys, you know, we should start training soon. Let's have a meeting to go over, like, this year's training plan and da-da-da-da-da. And that's when I was like, okay, i got to go for a run and figure this out. And yeah, on that run, it was just like a gut feeling, like totally clear mind, I don't want to do this anymore. So, um, yeah, and then Ash and I sort of talked about it, and five days later, we sat down with our coach and told him, and then kind of organized ourselves and started telling everybody else. So Yeah, I think those are all really powerful comments to make, and I think one thing that I've always told myself is that if curling ever becomes a job to me, then it's something that I need to step away from and reevaluate because this is a sport that I invest so much time and energy into that it's something that I have to um, be very passionate about and really just make the choice for myself that it's something that I want to keep pursuing. I think it's really powerful when athletes make the decision to step away from a sport that has essentially defined such a large part of their life for so long but it's okay to realize that there's other things out there in life and new things can become your priority. I think the one, you know, the thing you said there where uh, if curling ever becomes a job to me, that's, you know, kind of a sign that it's time to quit. I think that was a really big indicator for me and for Ashton was just, if I don't love what I do, why am I doing it? If it starts to feel like, oh, i got to go to practice today, I don't want to do that. I mean, for any athlete, I think that's a big sign. I think where the thing, the problem comes in is like where most most athletes probably realize that this isn't fun anymore, but they don't know what to do next. You know, like this routine has been created for them. They have somebody outlining their whole life. They know what they're doing day to day. They have a financial income. 
Uh, they've invested all their time into it, so they have no other interest, which is totally okay. I mean, we did that too. But I think, and you'll always, always, always miss competing and training, and you'll always look back and be a little bit nostalgic and be like, oh, remember when we got to do that? I mean, we totally miss that stuff. How, how I like, what I equate it to is school and sports. You know, you look back at university and you think, oh, man, that was so fun. Those were the best times of my life, but I'd never want to do the school part again. That's, that's exactly how I feel about track. Like, I wish I could travel. I wish I could see those people again. I wish I could, like, do the victory lap around the stadium with all of my competitors because they were, I mean, became really good friends, but I would never want to train anymore. So that's when you know it's time to be done. And my, one thing my sports psychologist told me when I was trying to decide was that no matter when you retire, you're always going to be sad, and you're always going to have feelings of like, oh, man, that that chapter of my life has has ended, and I have to move on, and I'm a little bit sad about it. But by delaying that feeling, you're not preventing it from happening. It's, you're still going to have to go through it in 10 years if you, you know, got through 10 years of your life miserably training and not enjoying yourself. After those 10 years, you're just going to have to go through that, those feelings. So why put it off um, if you know it, that the time is right to retire. Exactly. So I just had a thought here and correct me if I'm wrong, but having already won a bronze medal, I mean, there's not a lot of room for improvement. You could try to go on to win the silver or the gold, but realizing that that is another four years of hard, intense training that you'd have to commit your time to. And I know in kinesiology, we often talk that as coaches and trainers, it is insanely hard to predict that you're going to uh, create a program that is going to allow your athlete to peak their performance at the right time, place, and setting that will improve their results by such minuscule little amounts to ensure that they finish in higher standing. So just speak to your four years of training. Yeah, I think... I mean, like, like I said, my coach was great. He never made a four-year training plan. I mean, we had the general thing, you know, when we were finished 2012, it was like, okay, 2013 is a world championship year, 2015 is a world championship year, and 2016 is the Olympic year. We know we're doing those big meets. We're, we're going to try to peak for those big meets leading up. But other than that, it was like in 2013, we had a general overview of the meets we were doing, but then it was like a, a week-to-week training plan. Like he had an idea of, okay, April's going to be like a little bit of a back-off from training, really high competition month. And But we didn't know that. You know, we, we had a general idea. He had more of the vision, and he just told us, okay, this month we're training really hard. Here's the first week of training for this month. So, and each day that we came to practice, it was altered. We never, ever, ever once, and all of the however many days that I was training actually trained exactly what it said on the paper. That's why it's so hard for, you know, when people say, oh, what's your training plan? It's like, well, here's the general thing, but this isn't really what we do. <laughs> it's like altered every single day depending on how we feel. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. Maybe we can't train at all that day. Um, maybe there's a rest day that we feel really good and we actually end up training. So I don't know. It, it has to be so individual, and that's why it, to me, it's crazy when people train from a distance from their coach. It's like, how do you do that? How do you, how do you like, work together and, uh, like, change things around and depending on how you're feeling or talk things out? So, yeah, that, that's sort of, like, how we did it. And we just focused from year to year. Um, we never – I never in 2013 looked ahead to lunch, or to Rio. Never, never. It was, like, two weeks before the Olympics that I was like, okay, now here's Rio coming up. 
though. All right, so let's switch gears here for a second, and I hope you don't mind me asking about your love life, but I just think that it is such an amazing story that you and your husband both competed at an elite level at the same time, you and have Teflon and Ashen in decathlon, which is actually something that we are increasingly seeing in curlers these days is lots of relationships at the elite level. So can you speak about how you and Ashen managed to maintain a healthy relationship and not let the ups and downs of competing at this level and in the same sport impact your lives too heavily? We were both so invested in our performances and each other's performances. I mean, when you're married to somebody who's trying to win Olympic medals and you're trying to do the same thing, you obviously understand what they're going through. And I think we both, you know, not actually verbally, but just in understanding each other's goals, just made a pact that track comes before everything else. And that meant our marriage, too. You know, if if we were both tired and had to go to bed, that's what we would do. Um, if one of us wanted to go out to a movie or go out for dinner and drinks and the other one was like, no, I don't feel like it, it was no questions asked. You know, okay, we're not doing that. I understand. Our marriage definitely took a back seat. I'm not disappointed in that. I mean, honestly, I felt like it sort of needed to happen, or for us it did, in order for us to be, like, totally focused on what we were doing. To win Olympic medals, that has to be the number one priority in your life, and that includes, like, family, too. I mean, our family was, like, third in line for priority. But now that we're retired, uh, you know, we're, we're now, like, getting to do fun stuff together and actually get to be like a married couple and um, put each other first, which is which has been really fun, but also like a big learning experience for us. And I'm not saying that in order to be successful you and you're married to somebody who's also, you know, has similar goals that you do that you have to put them second, but that's just what works for us and we understood it. And yeah, I, I would say that that was kind of like the big thing that we we did with training and home life together. So I think I read somewhere that your coach actually introduced you to and possibly had a role in the wedding. Uh, just talk about the type of impact that your coach had on both your married and individual lives. So our coach didn't introduce us. We actually just met um, at school when I moved to Oregon. But um, our coach did marry us. He started working with us in the fall of 2008, so both Ashton and I. Ashton was already, like, I mean, his third year of university, or fourth year of university. I was going into my third year of university, and we had both competed at the uh, world championships already. So he came in uh, right as we were wrapping up our uh, college careers. But um, the reason we chose him to marry us was because we, Ashton, Harry and I spent, us three spent more time together than anybody we ever spent time with. I mean, it was like three people in in this, like, relationship because, as I said, we put track and field first before Ashton and I. So our relationship, all three of us together, mine and Harry's relationship, Ashton and Harry's relationship, mine and Ashton's relationship, it was all very open. I mean, when I come to practice and or Ashton came to practice and we had something personally going on, Harry could tell and we would talk about it with him or he with us. So it was just like this super open circle of communication because, I mean, when a lot affects a training, a training day or a training week or a training month or a competition, and he would often be like, guys, you know, what's up? What's wrong? Or we would say that to him. So it was just like a very 
I guess, intimate relationship that we had. And when we were going to get married, you know, we thought we want somebody to marry us who really knows our relationship and, like, what we go through together. And Harry was the first person that popped into our mind. You know, he knows us. He knows us, our relationship and us as people probably better than anybody. And I think when you go through something, like, stressful and hard, your true personality comes out, and he saw that in us a lot. So having him up there marrying us, I think, was really special. And, I mean, it made our day, like, just awesome. And it was funny because everyone says, like, when you walk down the aisle to get married, you're super nervous. And I was super nervous until I started walking down the aisle and saw those two standing up there, and I thought, oh, I'm, like, totally calm. We've been through worse than this together. I mean, we've competed at Olympic Games together with the stress and the stress of world championships and the lead-up, and, like, we've always got through it. Like, us three have always figured it out. This is a piece of cake. I can easily do this. But Harry always says it was, like, his most stressful day. He's like, that was harder than coaching at any Olympic Games. I was so nervous for it. But he did a great job, and it was just awesome to be up there with both of them. Wow, what an incredible story. Um, that's It's very unique that two Olympic athletes could get together and make a marriage so happy and lasting, and I wish you guys all the best with that. So you wore the maple leaf at two Olympic Games. Can you speak about what you learned from those experiences that might be able to help the younger athletes who have similar goals and aspirations for the future? And lastly here, one of the main points of my interview series is talking about the next steps. So just give us a bit of insight as to what your future is looking like. When I was younger, you know, I talked about in high school how I competed at World Youth and World Junior Championships. and. I got to wear, you know, the Canadian uniform at those world events and stuff. But I think when you're younger, you just don't really understand what that stands for or, like, what wearing your country's flag while you compete stands for. And I think it actually wasn't until the London Olympics uh, that I kind of started to understand it. And I was – I wasn't super happy with my performance in London, but we finished the heptathlon and all the heptathletes – kind of do a victory lap together uh, around the stadium. And it's, it's just a tradition that there is in that event. And as I was doing the victory lap, I just saw, like, so many people waving Canadian flags in the, the stands. I was like, geez, there were all these people here watching me? Like, I didn't know that. And I thought, you know what, I just, like, crap. I did crappy, and they're still supporting me. Like, that's crazy. They're just proud to have somebody from their country to cheer for. And I think that's when it kind of hit me the, the importance or the magnitude of, like, wearing the Canadian flag. You're, you're representing all these people in your country who are there to support you and, like, who just want you to do well and, like, represent them, I guess. And so it's hard to explain unless you've experienced it. But after um, 2012, you know, I had two more world championships for the Olympics, and at all three of those competitions, I mean, I just you could feel it. It it really did feel like you just had this whole country of support behind you. And I feel really fortunate to be from a country that genuinely, you know, is a you know gives us the freedom to be able to do what we love and pursue our passions and support us no matter what, and is open to all different types of beliefs and cultures and. And, yeah, that was a really powerful feeling to me, and I was proud to represent that. And I think 
ultimately, like, through my whole journey, what I realized was just it wasn't about winning Olympic medals. It was more about learning about yourself, learning your strengths and weaknesses, learning how you deal with adversity, learning how you deal with um, success, and really finding something that you love in life and pursuing it. And I think that, I mean, I don't, I don't know how I would have figured that out if I hadn't done, like, track or done sport. But now going forward in my life, that's, you know, that's my goal. That's all I want to do is just find something that I really love because I don't want to work a day in my life. I mean, they always say that when you find something you love, you don't work a day in your life. And that's, I think, ultimately what it taught me. Um, moving forward, what I'm doing now is along those tracks, you know, when I decided to retire, I thought, okay, what's my next passion? What do I love? And I love food. I love cooking. I love nutrition. I, I want to help people find their ultimate life in terms of, like, balance, nutrition, and exercise. And I just think it's so important. And I think there's so many people out there who are doing one diet to another to another and fads and this and that and being just super confused with how to get healthy and how to eat healthy and how to live a balanced lifestyle. And so um, Ashton encouraged me. He's like, you should keep, you should do that. Even if it's just the first step is, you know, making a website and sharing your knowledge. Like you never know what it could lead to. So, um, yeah, I started, or Ash and I had weareaten.com was a shared website we had as athletes, and I just transitioned it into kind of what we're doing now and keeping up with us, but um, a lot more about food and food educa education and healthy recipes. And, yeah, so I've been kind of plugging away at that, and it's been a lot of fun, and it's true that I don't feel like I've worked a day since I retired, which it was my ultimate goal. That's really great to hear, Brianne. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me, and I wish you all the best in your next steps. That does it for episode two of Next Steps with Kristen. Many thanks to Brianne Tyson Eaton for joining me, and thank you all for listening. Join me next time when I take the next steps in my journey from juniors to the pros.